Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 288th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that loves a juicy neck with a juicy spec. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with everyone. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to play on your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Innistrad spoilers, Innistrad Midnight Hump starting to uh, leak out into the community, as it were. Uh, Sorry, Innistrad Midnight what? Hump? Oh, Hunt. Yeah, that makes more sense. Innistrad... Midnight Hunt. I genuinely wasn't sure if that was intentional or not. I mean, I'm not sure Wizards knows either. Uh, That is correct. And that will be segment four, our topic of the week. Segment three will be our cards to watch. Segment two will be our top paper movers, which is, spoiler alert, pretty much all Innistrad. And segment one will be our MTGO metagame week in review. Uh, so let's hop in there. See, that was the first time I've done it backwards. So, you know, same segments, but new. Impressive. New process. I can count, go backwards in the alphabet too. Z, Y, X, W, <laughs> V, T, S, R, P, O, N, M, K, L. Yeah. Kind of awesome. do Kind of do I don't think that was all right. Uh, over on the Modern Challenge, uh, looks like uh, the one from September 4th here, starting out with Living End, which has uh, had a couple good weeks in a row here, um, thanks to Shardless Agent really kind of reviving the archetype. Yeah, Living End has been in and out of these top eights, and it's kind of hard to ignore at this point as a deck that I'm very curious to see whether it would be great gaining ground in paper or not. It's always kind of been a presence in Modern, but it seemed like it was somewhere between tier two and tier three for most of its career. And now just lately, it seems pretty squarely at least tier 1.5, right? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, it's, it's probably at worst tier two for sure. And without any sort of um, meaningful events with which to play it, it's uh, whatever you want it to be really. Alrighty. So what else do we have in this top eight? Uh, well, we have Hammer Time in second place, a uh, deck we've spent a lot of time talking about over the last several weeks. It's the Four Hammers, you know, we've got those Four Sentinels main deck, um, the Pierce Paladin and Stoneforge Mystic. So familiar looking here. I do notice it seems like they cut the, uh, oh, the card whose name I am never going to remember, the Prismatic Path to Exile. But they are playing, Would you, what is it? Prismatic Ending. Yeah, I think so. That sounds right. And the, but they do aren't playing the one path. 
we've got some Red White Burn in here, some Murktide, Jun Saga, Velomachus Turns, Mill, uh, and Shardless Agent shows up again down in last place, which makes uh, for eight individual archetypes, I believe. Yeah, this this is a tour of everything that's going on in this format right now, but not all of it. If it to get the rest of it, you got to look over at the other top eight from the day after. Blue Red Murktide taking down that challenge, uh, followed by Hammer Time in second, Jun Saga in third, Blue Black Mill in fourth, Blue Red Mur- Murktide in fifth. Probably the most interesting deck of the week has to be this five color zoo list that showed up in sixth place. We've got four Dragon's Rage Channeler, four Ragavan, three Scourge of the Skyclaves, which has been largely absent in the meta lately, four Tarmogoyf, four Territorial Kavu, four Wild Nactyl, uh, sorry, Nakadal, four Prismatic Ending, four Tribal Flames, four Lightning Bolt, a Stubborn Denial, four Mishra's Bobble, two Rancor, and of course Lurus in the sideboard. I'm surprised that there's no Scion um, of Draco here. But I guess that messes with the, the Lurus plan. Yeah, I mean, if you have to choose between Lurus and Sina Draco, I would imagine. It seems like you're picking Lurus here. Yep. But this this is nifty. I can't tell you the last time I saw a duck with Rancor in it. That yep. is that is fun to see. Updated Zoo with just all the most broken creatures in the format. Yeah. I mean, they keep making creatures better, so it's not a surprise that they're having eventually going to have a good week. Um, so, surprised that they, I'm surprised that there's a deck that can that runs Nakadal when they could go the other direction and just make the Jun Shadow version of this. Uh, curious as to what the the logic is as to why you want a maximum three three instead of a maximum seven seven eight eight nine nine etc. Well, I mean this is a domain strategy a domain strategy, and I guess they figure once you're committed to that. The Wild Nakadal is just a free 1-mana 3-3, which isn't terrible. Seventh place, we had Blue-White Yorion Control, which is also a little bit of a uh, unique list in the sense that there's plenty of Yorion stuff running around, but this is a version that's very squarely on the control side of things and a mixture of creature and spell control. Brazen Borrowers, Restoration Angels, Skyclave Apparitions, Subtlety, Vendillion Click, Wall of Omens, and Yorions, both in the main and, of course, in the sideboard. Four Teferi Time Raveler, four Spreading Seas, four Prismatic Ending, four Supreme Verdict main, four Archmage's Charm, four Counterspell, four Force of Negation, and two Path to Exile. I mean, this is Control's greatest hits. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I don't remember seeing that Vendillion Click art. That is colorful. Uh, that's the one you were making fun of from Secret Lair. Is it? I, I like vaguely remember some sort of candy-coated Secret Lair. This is the first time I'm just like looking at this one. It's very Lisa Frank. Um, but other than that, yeah. I mean, the list is Spreading Seas 2 main deck. Boy, we, I feel like we haven't seen that much either. Right? Because like, we haven't seen Merfolk since the early days of MH2 release. Yeah, but and this is very clearly not Merfolk, so like Spreading Seas is good now and Control Vex again, because it was for a period a while ago. Are they flickering that? I mean, you get the Restoration Angel, you're Spreading Seas, which is fun. I mean, part of that is Jund getting extra ambitious with four Urza Saga <clears throat> in the main, right? Right, yeah, getting to answer Urza Sagas with that is useful. And you are a Yorian deck, or you have Yorian in your deck. Actually, this is... Hmm. In the main and the board. 
Yeah, I'm just trying figuring that out. So you can play Yorion as a side as your co- companion, but still play them main. Yeah, because it doesn't have. It's not like uh, Luris, where all of your permanents have to be um, two casting costs or less, right? Yorion, Yorion just says you have to have 80 cards in your deck. Doesn't care whether there's extra Yorions lying around. Yeah, I just, ha- I guess I hadn't noticed that before. Yep. Caught me by surprise. Uh, yeah, I mean, the spreading seeds with the Yorions makes sense, too. Eighth place was Grixis Control. Uh, three Snapcaster, four Thing in the Ice, and then a pile of instants and sorceries, including the four Dress Down um, that have surprised people with their uh, infiltration of the format. Uh, and then a whole bunch of other stuff. Counterspell seeing lots of play across multiple lists in Modern. Definitely worth taking a look at some of the premium counterspells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't dug through those, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some more opportunities in there. The, is, is that, um, is that mm-hmm. a legitimate critic, crick, cricket in the background? I was just going to say, now is probably a good time to mention that I'm reasonably sure there is a cricket in my office. And I looked for him before we started recording, but I couldn't <laughs> find him. So you are going to get some chirping on this. He oh, might also be poor listeners. He might be outside on my porch, which is why I couldn't find He's him. He's really loud. I, I like I went looking for him and I can't find him. I, I and I genuinely don't know what to do here because he could be he could be kind of hidden. Maybe yeah, if found, the maybe if the moon comes out, he'll be a wear cricket and he'll run off to go maul somebody. At least then I'd find him. So my apologies if he is too annoying over the course of the cast, but just imagine it's like a, a third cast member that no one really wants to listen to. Yeah, I'm not sure that helps, but <laughs> top paper movers of the week, kicking things off with Eye of Ugin out of the Battle for Zendikar Expeditions, uh, going from 55 to 100. Three listings left, just eight copies total at 100 plus on TCG. Pretty interesting, given that you can't run this in modern these days. Do you... Um... Yeah, I mean, I guess people play them in their commander decks. I mean, really, that's about the only answer that's left here. Well, uh, there's legacy versions where you can run it. True, true, true. Yeah, I always forget that that format exists, basically. Um, sure, whatever. Uh, Den of the Bugbear, a card who uh, with a, a fun little name there, out of uh, the D&D set. I'm always going to call it the D&D set. I'm never actually going to say... Adventures in the Adventures Forgotten, of the Forgotten Realms. Realms. Uh, this is the Red Land, and we're looking at the non-foils here, 250 to 5. So a double up based on just standard and pioneer play, which is pretty good. You know, if we're you you know, if standard and pioneer can double up a a recently printed rare, I mean people are buying this to play in their local stores. It's kind of rewar- kind of reassuring in some capacity. After Den of the Bugbear, you've got Master of the Wild Haunt. The original copies out of Magic 2010 are showing a 9 to 18 move. I noticed the M25 look like they're still available around 8 bucks, So might just be the last of those particular editions selling out. But Master of the Wild Haunt makes wolves. Um, so that's kind of why he's popular. And he used to be a really powerful card in Standard. He's... Uh, I don't think he's especially great in EDH, but people are going to buy him for their themed decks you got blood artist foils that have avison avison restored 15 to 32 113 or so it's both a vampire and a strong sack outlet so not particularly surprising wanderwine hub out of lorwyn foils single printing ever of that card which is a blue white merfolk land uh, 
14 to 30. It's just been a long, long time without a reprint. Yeah, yeah. I actually just listed a couple Guilt Leaf hubs, which are the elf version from that cycle. And my LP foils are like 65 bucks because it remains the only time those cards have been printed. And uh, did they even print those? Uh, I don't think they even... Mystery Booster. They got a Mystery Booster printing recently, I was going to say. They had to print them at some point. But I wouldn't be surprised to see these show up in some tribal decks at some point down the road, but probably as non-foils. Yeah, I could buy that. Following that is Mayor of Aberbrook. Uh, Innistrad, non-foils, uh, again, 4 to 10. Based on, so I'm going to blow through a couple of these because we have a bunch in a row that are virtually all the same thing. Mayor of Aberbrook, 4 to 10. Uh, Hot Master the Fells out of Dark Ascension, non-foil, 12 to 30. And uh, Tombstone Stairwell out of Mirrodin, 20 to 52. Um, that's reserveless and also makes zombies, which are relevant if you are playing a zombie deck. Uh, and Ulric of the Crawlin Horde, which there's probably a more fun way to say that, but I don't know it, uh, which is the legendary Grawl werewolf from Eldritch Moon. Non-foils there, 3 to 10. Oh, and I guess I might as well finish out the list because the last one is the same thing. Crew and Outlaw, foils from Innistrad, the original printing, 5 to 22, supposedly, uh, again on Innistrad, which I got to tell you, I looked through a bunch of stuff um, last week, the week prior when I was going through picks, and I saw most of these, and Crew and Outlaw for sure is, it was decent. It was a decent card. This was on my list of things to go at, to consider, but uh, it didn't seem worth it. Maybe you'll get there if you bought these at five. Like, you'll probably get to sell them at, like, ten-ish. So, that works, I suppose. Yeah, we've got a ton of vampire werewolf movement. We'll get some zombie action as well out of all this stuff going on. And I've definitely sold both uh, Mayor of Averbrook promo foils that I got in on at, like, $2.50 maybe three years ago uh, for... Ten dollars plus this week, and crew and outlaw foil. I sold one of those around twenty the other day. So clearing out all that dead weight, especially the werewolf stuff, which I think is going to be, you know, flash in the pan and then gone. I, I haven't seen anything yet that leads me to believe that werewolves are going to be the hot new thing in Commander for very long. And yeah, the get it while you're getting is good. It's just free money. Yeah, there's been pent up demand for a while. But for like a particularly good commander, and I think they've gotten a lot closer to the mark this time than last. But I would agree with you that that that's going to be uh, relatively sh- short-term heavy demand with a long gradual tail after the fact. Yeah. Top Magic Online movers of the week: Season Pyromancer out of MH1, 20 and a half ticks to about 27 ticks, 30% plus gains. Is in multiple modern archetypes and shows up in top eights here and there. A lot of action in tier two to tier three. Um, also, there's like six or seven different decks that have five owed, running three or four copies of Season Pyromancer lately, and a lot of them don't show up in our top eight list. But the card is getting lots and lots of play. Um, and we've also got Mox Diamond here out of FTV Relics, which is a promo copy uh, from a Magic Online perspective, going from about 22 ticks to 32 on the back of Legacy Vintage Demand, presumably. Also, Endurance uh, promos, that'll be like the Borderless promos, 
70 ticks to 104. So you've got an MH2 borderless promo that's over $100 worth of tickets on the back of heavy multi-format play. That's a, that's a hefty price tag for MTGO. Yeah. Den of the Bugbear, uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms from 6 to 9, making a move in digital just like it did in paper. Again, that's on the back of strong standard Pioneer play. It does like a decent Goblin Rabble Master impression, right? Um, and then you got Exploration out of Double Masters for just over four tickets to six and a half, uh, 55% gains total on the back of EDH and Legacy play mostly on that platform. Yeah, if you've got Den of the Bugbear moving both in paper and on MTGO, we definitely, you know that it's, it's organic, like right. The card is people are buying the card because they need to play with it, and they're doing it in multiple formats here, multiple platforms rather. Let's jump over now to segment three, the cards to watch. James, you've got an, a, a selection here for us, and I noticed it's. I noticed you've actually got a couple that I was looking at last week or the week prior. I definitely the two names here definitely jumped off the page at me as potential choices when I put all my vampires on the list. So. Um, we're on the same page there. Uh, but why don't you get us started on your first pick? So I'll kick things off with Tiamat, the borderless foil version out of Adventures of the Forgotten Realms. Um, $50. You can currently get these four in Europe. They're somewhere between 60 and 70 in North America. Probably headed for $100 plus. Give it 6 to 12 months to get there. This set doesn't seem like it was opened all that much, although it's worth flagging whenever you want to throw that on the table that uh, I think it was Rosewater was claiming that this was one of their best-selling sets ever. So even if that is true, we're not seeing the presence of those singles in the market. So it's very possible that the product has sold to a bunch of D&D fans who are never going to resell those cards, um, which is essentially the same as throwing a bunch of the inventory into a void from the perspective of MTG Finance. Bottom line being that Tiamat is a very uh, iconic character in the D&D lore and an auto-include in all the Ur-Dragon decks that people have been building lately. There's only 38 listings left on TCG Player. You know, it's only been out for a month, and that's not a, not a tremendous number of listings at all. Um, Ur-Dragon's been the fourth most popular commander lately. That will fade as we get into this Innistrad uh, hype cycle a little deeper, but still going to get included in the five color dragon decks from here till the end of time yeah even if it drops a little bit out of popularity with the new slew of commanders in innistrad um, it's still a good five color dragon it'll be a lightning rod for DD focused players DD first players magic players second so you know you've got that angle going for you uh you know, and with you know, if you're buying these out of Europe, where the demand is going to be less, a little lower, and you're getting a price angle there already, I think this is uh, this is good. There, you know, it's one of those cards that's a touch pricey if you're going to sit on it for a little while. Which I mean, certainly something that I run into with my picks regularly as well. But uh, you know, if you're making purchases and you there's some of these floating around at a good price, I certainly don't hate this at all. So this next one of yours, I think we had on the agenda either October or November of last year, right after it came out, flagging it as one of the key mythics from the set. Give us the lowdown on where this one's sitting now. 
Yeah, I made sure to check, and we haven't talked about it in this spreadsheet, which dials us back to, uh, actually, I can take a quick look. Our first episode on this spreadsheet was March 16th. So it might have come up prior to that. I didn't check last year's spreadsheet. But I'm looking at Ancient Green Warden. Uh, this is, uh, this was absolutely an obvious one back when we were talking about, you know, Zendikar Rising, um, as, as one of the cards to pick. This is a six mana five, seven reach. Uh, you can play lands from your graveyard. So it's got the crucible of worlds text on it. And if a land enters the battlefield, causes a triggered ability you control, you can do it again. So it's essentially panharmonicon when you play land, panharmonicon for landfall. So it's a really cool effect and it, and it doubles. I mean, it lets you play lands out of your graveyard as well. So like playing your fetch lands out of your graveyard with him in play is obviously nutty if you have any landfall. Uh, he's in about 10,000, a little over 10,000 EDH rec decks at this point, which is 6% of all green decks since he's been printed. Now, remember, we're talking about Zendikar Rising here. That set's like, what, 2, 3, 7, 12 years old? I don't know. Time has no meaning. But definitely, we're, this is not a 2021 20, card. Um, in fact, I think it's 2020, 2019, I believe. No, no, no. This is one year old. This is the last one. Oh, my God. Is it... <laughs> cannot keep track of these sets. It is unreal how much I have lost the ability to pinpoint set. You know, I used to be able to name the season of every set always. Like, I knew them backwards and forwards for years and years and years, but all of these product placements, and then on top of that, COVID have just destroyed my ability to do that. The, the, In Matrix, any case, the, the Matrix 4 trailer today probably didn't help anybody either. Time yeah. compression is real. <laughs> um, right? It's like a time warp. Uh... Okay, so it's a year old, but that's still enough time to really make a point about the popularity of the card, right? This isn't a card that's in 6%, but it came out a month ago. It's 6%. It came out a year ago. So we know people are continuing to use it. It has sold... I'm looking at the extended art foils here. They have sold 10 extended art foils in like the last week or so. So the, the sell-through rate is pretty good here. There's no walls. Supply is kind of moderate, right? We're still only a year out. And Zedekar Rising moved a lot of packs. But this is clearly an EDH staple. Um, you can get these extended art foils for 15 right now. And I think if you're snagging them around that price point, you just hang out on them. Uh, I think now's the time to get in. It seems like the price is about as low as it's going to get. And maybe about a year from now, hopefully, you can get out of these in the 30 to $40 range. So, did track down my original call here. It was November 24th of last year, episode 247. And at the time, this is interesting uh, to compare. It was in 2400 EDH rec decks at the time. It was one of the top five uh, EDH cards from ZNR. And it was in 15% of all green decks. I think you, your update says that over time it faded down to about 6%. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is which is the, the same page we're always on, right? Yeah, like yeah. cards are always high at the outset. Yeah. So I definitely agreed with it. My call was 20 to 45, but it looks like it was early because you can get in now at 14 to 15. I guess there's not a lot of 14 to $15 copies left, but there are certainly some lying around at 16. And, you know, for it to go anywhere from 30 to my original 45 call in the next year or two seems very likely. Cool. If it was uh, if it was a rare, I'd be a lot less excited. But as a mythic, it's gonna be fine. It's re well, it's really really hard to build big walls on this. Like gaming company, biggest crack jobber on TCG only has nine copies and stuff. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the angle here is that it's a mythic, right? So you're not battling with that aspect. Yep. All right, so moving right along, I've got one that I we definitely haven't talked about. Marwin the Nurturer. 
foil rare out of Dominaria from an era where there was no premium cards or premium versions for most of this stuff. So all you've got is the pack foils, and it's the only... It's been printed a couple of times, but never again in foil. Um, I also view this card as being having very low reprint risk. I think it would be totally off uh, Wizards Radar for most of the places where they, they look to include this kind of stuff in foil. Um, this is a 1-1 Elf Druid, so it helps both the Elf and the Druid tribe um, if you've got a bunch of Elves. And 2 and a green, Legendary Creature. Whenever another Elf enters the battlefield under your control, you put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on Marwyn the Nurturer, and then you can tap her to add an amount of green equal to her power. So she's basically like a worse version of the uh, Druid... Um, uh, what's the the druid I just called recently that's out of AFR? Bro- Circle of Dreams. Circles? No, the Circle, Circle of Dreams, Dreams druid. Um, works alongside, and Marwyn only has 17 listings several years out. Starting around 7 bucks. Give that enough time, they're going to end up being anywhere from 18 to 25 I would guess. And the reason this is relevant right now is that Lathless, despite being printed a while back, um, is the number three commander lately in terms of builds being reported on EDH rec and Marwin shows up in 92% of those decks <laughs> and is also just in 11,000 reported decks on EDH rec period, which is 4% of green decks overall, uh, a very solid number. Um, and again, single printing foil, low reprint risk. It's an elf. We are going back to Dominaria next year. All of these things lead me to believe that this is reasonably well positioned off the radar spec pick. Yeah, this is uh, really fascinating. I, you know, I mostly haven't been looking at pack foils now for a while. Not that I think they're necessarily a bad choice. I just it hasn't been where I've concentrated my efforts at all. But I do think there's probably some still some great options because if you basically are picking a card that doesn't have an extended art foil, well, you got you got to buy something cool looking. Um, and maybe this is that it's just going to be a pack foil. And in Marwin's case, that's that's what you're doing here. So I like it from that regard. Also way less supply than I would have anticipated um, and very solid demand. Elves are a permanent fixture as an EDH tribe that people like to play. So uh, really hard to, to complain here. I think this seems like a good choice. And it's the type of card that I, I think you're right that the foil reprint risk is very low. Like it's not to say it won't happen because it could be one of those cards I just throw in somewhere because I want an elf rare and it's there and it's available. But other than that, uh, it seems like it wouldn't be this is a weird comment, but like intentional, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's it's very. It would be a strange card to include as a, you know, a box topper as part of a masterpiece series. It just doesn't seem to really fit well in there because it's it's a cool card, but it's it's relatively narrow. Um. So yeah, I, I think it's I think it's safe for a good long time to dodge I, a premium copy, and I sell pack foils all the time for cards that are not that don't have premium alternatives. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And sometimes when a card is S tier, you just sell all of it. Like mm-hmm. if you're talking about something like a Shadow Spear for instance, I can sell any copy of that card. Foil, non-foil, Japanese extended art, foil extended art, whatever. Like I I've sold every kind of Shadow Spear there is to sell. And I find that that tends to be the case with most of the S tier stuff. And then with something like this that's more, you know, mid-tier EDH useful that utility will be enough to get it there if all people have got is the foil. 
And especially yeah. since it's a legendary permanent, it's not like sometimes with an instant you play it, it goes to the graveyard, people don't get to see it again. But the stuff is actually going to sit on the board for a while. People are a little bit more willing to invest in. Yeah, I mean, part of it, I guess, is I haven't built an EDH deck in a little while, so I kind of forget that, like, there's still plenty of cards that you need to put in your deck, and you got to make sure they look cool. So you're going to work with what you got. Um, the, the, the other comment I would make here that I would have to be aware of is that she's an elf card, and they do like to reprint their elves, right? Like, that's a popular tribe to go back to the well on just because it's so popular for players that they, I think don't want elf cards to generally be too pricey. So that would be the one factor here that would make me a little bit wary about reprints, but not enough to really scare me off. I wouldn't be trying to wait years. I would probably set an exit and, and make a, a point of leaving at that, that juncture. Well, I mean, we did get her in the laughless deck and non foil version. So the, fo- the foils are the upgrade. This is true. This is true. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that does make the foils a lot better, for sure. I mean, the foils on elf cards are always better in that regard because they're less likely to get hit by reprint after reprint. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think that I think it's a so- I think it's a solid pick. I it just elves in general. I think they like to print more of, but that doesn't mean you're that doesn't mean you're going to get a foil copy of this in the next three years we know all the stuff that's getting released pretty much up until some portion of 2023 right and there's there's nothing on that agenda that looks like this card is likely to get a reprint do we know that that is the exhaustive and comprehensive list well there's gonna be tons of secret layers in and amongst there that we don't have any information about well but beyond that like because i feel like there's always some like walmart precon deck or something like that, right? Like the the card that stands out in my head is uh, oh, what is that card? It's the red dragon. Itali. It's not Itali. a dragon. Uh, dinosaur, but yes, that looks like a dragon. Yes, um, who a spinosaur? Alara would inform us. Okay, who showed up? I believe as the pack a, a promo foil. Yeah, it was a resale promo. Is what they tar- t- type uh, put it in as who is foil only. And I think that put a humongous number of copies in the market. And that's the type of thing that I would worry about. Like they wouldn't announce it in their product slate. It's just going to show up at Walmart and suddenly there's going to be three times the inventory that there ever was. Sure. I just think this card is so off the radar. There's very little chance this would be headlining a product like that. Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not unfair. I I think that's a a fine, a fine position to take. It's just the type of thing. It raises my hairs. All right. Moving right along. Uh, yeah, my other card this week is, uh, I was looking for, for older stuff that was kind of falling off the radar here. Um, I can say older as in like six months, but, uh, Reflections of Litjara, another one that we would have talked about as a, definitely an outlier in call time as a potential, um, one to scoop up bunches of when you got the opportunity. This is the five mana blue enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, you choose a creature type. And whenever you cast a spell of that type, you copy the spell. So if you choose uh, Merfolk, every time you cast a Merfolk, you copy the spell. Or elves, or dinosaurs, or dragons, or whatever. I mean, this card seems... If you're playing any deck with any sort of tribal 
element and as blue, this feels like it's supposed to be in your deck because copying every, even if it copies one spell, you're probably close to have gotten your money's worth. Um, and two spells is wild. These extended art foils are 250. It's in 5,000 EDH rec decks, which is about 5% since it was printed. Uh, I, I see that probably not, I don't see that going down much. 5% is already on the, on the lower end, especially for something that's going to be so universal. It's not even like a merfolk card. It's just a tribal card. So it's any tribal deck that's in blue. And they also like to make tribal commanders multicolor. Um, because then you get to play more cards in that tribe. So uh, it's also sold 10 extended art foils in the last like four or five days, maybe even a little less than that. So there's definitely some movement on as well. I'd be, I'm going to be snagging any copies of this I find under $3 and just kind of stashing them away. And hopefully this time next year, maybe a little longer, you're selling at 10, maybe even 15. Yeah, I think it's reasonable. I've looked at this card before. I worry about these kind of mid-tier um, utility cards in terms of whether people are willing to go for premium versions of them. There was another card from this set that was kind of similar that I called early on, and it turned out to be far too early. We're talking about, uh, which one, like Mystic Reflections, was that it? Uh, The one with the shark in the art? Yeah, correct. The Mystic Reflection, yeah. That had really good numbers coming out of the gate, and the reality is the hype cycle just rolled on, and the people forgot about the card before it could even really be a thing. I mean, Mr. Reflection is still reported in 6,700 decks, which is 5% of all blue decks since it was published, but people haven't been chasing it super hard on TCG. It's got a reasonable drain, just like a lot of this stuff does, but the number of collector booster boxes open for Kaldheim is high enough that it's going to take 12, 16, 18, 24 months for these to drain out to the point where they're profitable. And you could have just waited six or eight months after I called it and then got in around now probably is pretty reasonable on Mystic Reflection right alongside Reflections of Lit Yara because Mystic Reflection is sitting in there. I think Cool Stuff Inc. has them at like $3 for the non-foils and you can get the the foils between 3 and 5 depending on where you're picking them up. So all of that stuff looks very reasonable um, for personal use and you could probably start stashing them away on a longer horizon. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually looked at Mystic Reflection when I after I made this pick. Like, I found this card, and then I was looking at Mystic Reflection as well. And I do think that card is excellent. There's no doubt about it. Um, was it too early before? I don't. Apparently, um, maybe there was too much product open. Maybe the hype cycle moved on. Like you said, I don't have an exact answer for it. But now we are eight months past. I think most of the settling that's going to happen on a lot of these cards has already occurred yeah um i I also just really like this because i mean you if this was like choose a creature type whenever you cast a creature of that a card of that type draw a card to me that feels easy to cut right like oh i just draw a card every time i cast one like that's not bad but it's like yeah is this worth a slot yeah this feels cuttable but copying them like that's so bonkers like if you're playing a five color dragon deck this means every time you cast a dragon you get the same thing again like that's big. So this feels like a. I I get I, I guess I'm I'm taking it personally when you say it's a mid range utility card because to me it feels like on the higher range of utility cards in a in a tribal deck. But the the point stands. It's a fair point. Yeah. So I mean I'm gonna I just want to keep all this in mind as we're starting you know taking a look at car, new 
extended art, you know, FEAs, foil extended arts out of collector boosters, especially for standard sets, you know, looking, it's not a bad idea for us to be setting some targets that are lower than current market, where we think that they are more in the mid range of overall demand profile. I think sometimes on the S tier stuff, you really do want to be getting in on an opening weekend or within the first six to eight weeks, but sometimes uh, you can wait you know, six to eight months and double back on it and get in at the right time and put your money to you to work in the in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to clean up here on my side with a couple of vampire picks. I'm giving two because they're both relatively hard to come by. Like some of this stuff was much better off two, three, four weeks ago before the full Innistrad hype landed. So you're going to have a little bit of trouble uh, tracking down these in any great quantity, whether you're looking at Europe, Japan, or the U.S., but if you can, you know, find some locally or just pull yours out of your binder to get ready to sell, all all is is fair in in Bloody Vampire and Werewolf Wars. So we've got Champion of Dusk here out of Rivals of Ixalan. Uh, you can pick the foils up in around five or six bucks. I'd be looking to get off that train around fifteen. Uh, these are both single printing foils, mind you. Cordial Vampire is the other one out of Modern Horizons One. Get in on that around. 10, 11, 12, depending on what continent you're buying it on, and aim to get off the train somewhere between 20 and 25. This is not the kind of stuff I'd be dying to pick up for the long term, but given how well this stuff, this like random vampire werewolf stuff has been selling for a lot of the pro traders lately, including me, um, if you could get this in hand quickly and flip it into the market over the course of the next four weeks, I think you'll do fine. I, I wouldn't want to be super deep on any of it, but you pick up a couple of copies here and there, and I think you'll be able to get turn them around in a hurry cordial vampire specifically i remember i think was when i i picked like three vampires this week that week and i think cordial vampire was fourth on my list um that's the one whenever any other creature dies you put a one-on-one counter on every vampire you control like this just keeps permanently anthemating your team every time something dies which is nutty right like you can have a turn where you sacrifice couple tokens blah 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 and suddenly your team's got like four woman counters on it this is really good uh and it's a modern horizons one printing um it was in jumpstart but there's no foils uh actually that's online i take that back so the modern horizons yeah is the only printing that's that one in particular i'm a big fan of keep in mind that we saw blood artist foils from avison restored going 15 to 30 plus up here in original printing and that's the sack outlet that's also a vampire that you're looking for to chain off with your cordial vampires. Yep. I feel like I remember picking Blood Artist, but it might have been Zulaport Cutthroat doing a Blood Artist impersonation Sure. as well. But yeah, I agree. People, vamp- people love vampires, man. Twilight has a lasting impact on our culture, for better or worse. Alrighty, so we got Jay Tempkin out of the Pro Trader pool throwing out Druid of Purification Extended Art. This was out of the D&D set commander uh, cards that only showed up in the D&D collector boosters, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, could that product formulation be any more confusing? This is a card intended for commander, but you can't get it in the commander decks. You have to get it in the collector booster boxes, which are aimed at more enfranchised players. And it says on it that it's a commander card if i'm not mistaken and yet it's part of the adventures of the forgotten realms set i mean the whole thing is just so messy 
Bottom line is it's so far reported in 1,100 EDH rack decks, 3% of all green decks. I looked at this card a couple weeks ago, and it wasn't quite there for me yet, stats-wise. And I worry that this is going to be one of those cards where if it's in 3% right out the gate, it might only be in 1% this time next year. And if that's the case, I think you're going to have trouble gaining a lot of traction on non-foil extended arts. Druid of Purification is a card that I looked at, I, I want to say it was like last week or the week prior. And I had, and I don't know if it was a, a listener pointed it out and I stopped and looked at it or if I, I stumbled upon it myself, but I kind of had a similar reaction to you where I, I was like, okay, I know the numbers look good. Um, like the numbers look okay and people are talking about how much they like this and it's in weird product formulation so that helps its case but if i'm playing a green deck in edh and i want answers to artifact and enchantments there are so many choices and this doesn't seem like it's like it's fine at doing that but it's not like spectacular right like it's fine it's a solid political card it's a two three for three and a green Human Druid, when Druid of Purification enters the battlefield starting with you, each player may choose an artifact or enchantment you don't control. Destroy each permanent chosen this way. The one thing that's got going for it is the listings are not particularly high. Um, other than the vampire foils that have already been targeted, this is one of the lower inventory pools of anything we looked at on this list tonight. Um, you know, if you get those seven or eight dollar copies on TCG Player, it doesn't take very long before you're talking about ten or eleven dollar copies, and it's got a pretty reasonable ramp forming, and no major walls. So, I, I think I like this best as a go ahead and snap one off for yourself, and I don't know if I want to be personally like much deeper than that, but I won't be surprised if people pick up four, eight, twelve copies of this and hope that they're going to be able to buy list them to Card Kingdom in a year for plus 40% or something. Yeah, I mean, it is possible that the product formulation is going to have a weird impact on this and a card that would be, you know, moderate to mediocre ends up being above average simply because there's not nearly enough copies on the market for what people are looking for. One of the other things going for it is that CK is already offering 750 cash, 975 credit. And that's for just the normal pack one or the extended art? That's the extended art. So that, that gives you some pretty risk-free experimentation here. Just like college. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so let's move on over to the Innistrad Midnight Hump spoilers from the week. Um, all sorts of sexy things out the gate from the various content creators that Wizards has shared fresh cards with. Gotta say, I'm not super excited about this set of adversaries being mythics instead of rares. Yeah, uh, it does harken back to the days of uh, when they first announced mythics. And they basically said, we're not going to do... Uh, what was the term they use? Staple cards, basically. You know, we're, we're going to, you know, we're, we're, it's mostly going to be big, splashy, fun cards, not, f you know, competitive staples. And these are like exactly the opposite of that. <laughs> not that I expect them to hold to design rules, product formulation rules. They set out, God, a decade ago now, but does highlight the differences here. These really read like rares. 
The There's a couple of these that look pretty solid for EDH. Tainted Adversary comes to mind as doing a decent Grave Titan impression. Um, it's a one and a black for a two, three zombie with death touch. When it enters the battlefield, you can pay two and a black any number of times. When you pay this cost one or more times, you put that many plus one plus one counters on Tainted Adversary, then create twice that many two, two black zombie creature tokens, but they have decayed, which means they can't block. And if it attacks, you sack it at the end of combat. So you get one attack with them. Yeah, I, I had a similar thought that it's Grave Titany. Uh, Grave Titan was a really powerful card. Um, was a big deal in Standard for a long time. So being close to Grave Titan is pretty good, especially if, depending on what Standard ends up looking like, right, the metagame is always relevant uh, and, you know, for, for Standard cards like this. You know, if we're talking about EDH, Hmm. I mean, it's not like atrocious because it's a monosync. So if you untap one turn with Cabal Coffers or whatever, uh, and you've got tw- you know twenty five mana and you don't know what else to do with it, you can just cast this thing and get a bunch of zombie tokens and maybe you have some shenanigans that you can do with those, which isn't terrible. But and I but I and I also think this seems like the best one of the cycle. But that might just because it's it looks close enough to Grave Titan. Then again, we could also just be underrating the utility of the decision. Like it's a very these all are solid plays on what turn two, and they're also solid plays on turn four or five, and also solid plays on you know whenever you have that much mana. Like the fact that they're good at each interval means they're just going to be fine for standard because that flexibility is worth so much. This is a case where I feel like I have, as far as standard and beyond playability is concerned, I have to defer to the professionals. Like, compared to Gisa, Glorious Resurrector, Gisa being the female human wizard character that um, they are revisiting here, 2 and 2 black for a 4-4. Four, four. If a creature an opponent controls would die, exile it instead. At the beginning of your upkeep, put all creature cards exiled with Gisa onto the battlefield under your control, but they gain decayed. How is Tainted Adversary and Gisa not supposed to be reversed, rare to mythic? <laughs> uh because they set on a cycle <laughs> yes i mean it, it just doesn't make any sense to me Gisa Gisa would be a pretty solid uh financial gainer in the mid to long term as just a a solid edh card that can do a lot of work in in the mid to late game as a mythic but as a as a rare i guess we got to look at the foil extended arts and eh, i'm not super excited with what i'm seeing here so far we got consuming blob Five mana, three and two green. First of all, oozes just don't get there. Other than scavenging, which obviously was a competitive staple for a long time, pretty much all the rest of the experimentations in this regard are just too finicky and don't do enough. Consuming Blob's power is equal to the number of card types among cards in your graveyard, and its toughness is equal to that number plus one. So basically it's got Tarmogoyf's power and toughness assigning ability. At the beginning of your end step, create a green ooze creature token with this creature's power and toughness is equal to the same thing. So it's a timer goif that copies itself for five mana. Which which actually gets pretty wild because it doubles every turn, right? So at the end of the first turn, you get one. But if they're both alive, next time you get two. Now, how many turns can you go with this thing getting unmolested? I mean, eh. 
that's a good question to take. That's a question for your table on how much removal they play. Uh, but is is a five mana? So do I want to pay five mana for Tarmogoyf if he's going to make copies of himself every turn? So, so hold up, why do you get two on the second turn? Isn't um, doesn't make a copy of itself. It makes a copy of itself with, without the ability. Oh, does it say that? I'm sorry, I missed that. Then never mind. I lied. It's even worse. Yeah, I, I'm not super stoked about that. You got Enduring Angel two and three white. Uh, for a 3-3 three, three flying double strike angel, um, I feel sorry for people that have to play against this in limited because it also gives you hexproof. And then if your life total would be reduced to zero or less, instead transform Enduring Angel and your life total becomes three. Then if Enduring Angel didn't transform this way, you lose the game. So I guess they get one chance to interact with it. Then it turns into a uh, having power and toughness equal to your life total. And you still have Hexproof, it still has Flying, but no longer has Double Strike, and whenever it attacks, you double your life total. Yeah, this, uh, I mean, like you said, aside from being bonkers and limited, is, was Fine? What was the, what was the full name of this card? Enduring Angel. I just don't... Yeah, I mean, my problem with this is you have to get it to trigger. So if I'm playing, so if we're talking about EDH... I'm going to play a 5-mana 3-3 three, three flying double strike. Okay, that's mostly irrelevant. You have Hexproof. Okay, that's, that's not nice. terrible. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's nice. But in order to tr- trigger it, I have to tr- flip it over, or I have to I have to go to zero life. Like, <laughs> that's kind of tricky to do, right? Like, what are the odds that someone's just going to kill me knowing that I have Enduring Angel on the table? More than likely, they just attack me down to some low life total, and then we just wait until the board gets wrath. And then I die. Essentially, I would have to kill myself to get this to flip. And even when it flips over, you don't win. Like, yeah, you got, you got am I going to attack to go from three to six life? Like, ugh. Yeah, you have some work to do still. Yeah. And then continuing along with this trend of odd mythics, Poppet Stitcher, two and a blue for a 2-3 human wizard. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, create a 2-2 black zombie creature token with decayed. At the beginning of your upkeep, if you control three or more creature tokens, you may transform Poppet Stitcher, which then becomes Poppet Factory, an artifact. Creature tokens you control lose all abilities and have base power and toughness 3-3. And at the beginning of your upkeep, you may transform Poppet Factory back to being the Stitcher. So there's some flexibility there, and there's some fun stuff you can do in a blue-black zombie deck or some other blue-black deck or blue-something deck that's focused on tokens. But I, it just seems utterly forgettable in the grand scheme of things. I mean, this this is, I think, better than the other ones for the most part. So for you're paying for three for two, three, and you have to think of it like Monastery Mentor. Now, I'm not saying the tokens are yeah. as good as Monastery Mentor, but the fact that you're just going to put... The, this is going to be one of like eight creatures in your deck, and you're just going to cast tons of instants and sorceries and build up... Uh, an army of these. And then the idea here is that you flip it into the artifact and now they, your zombies lose decayed. So now you can attack with everybody. And then if you need to, you can leave it on the artifact side so that you just always have that. And when you decide you need more zombies, you can flip it back over. So I think the play pattern here is not terrible. Um, and I think this could be potent if there's, if there's uh, support for it in the standard meta. I mean, a, a standard deck that just, plays this and a bunch of efficient instants and sorceries and tries to win like that it certainly seems like something people would want to try and do um as far as edh goes mm, that's questionable like 
I mean, it's, people will throw it in decks, but it's going to get thrown into decks for thematic reasons more than anything else. Right, right. There's, I mean, there's lots of other ways to generate big armies that don't require this many triggers and hoops. Yeah, that's the thing is you're very unlikely to be playing a deck that wants lots of zombies. That's you're very unlikely to be playing a deck that plays lots of instant sorceries that also wants zombies tokens. Like that's not something they're generally after. Uh, the fact that you can make all your tokens base three three isn't bad, but there's in EDH there's plenty of decks that don't already have tokens that are better than that. So I agree with you that the demand for this in EDH is going to be medium. If this is going to see success anywhere, it's going to be competitive formats. That feels that is of course a stretch. It's just what I imagine to be the most likely home for this. I feel a little better about, about Moonvale Regent. It's a four mana. Three and a red for a 4-4 four, four flying dragon. Whenever you cast a spell, you may discard your hand. If you do, draw a card for each of that spell's colors. When Moonvale Regent dies, it deals X damage to any target where X is the number of colors among permanents you control. So let's assume you're playing five color dragons. You cast a spell, you discard your hand. Let's say you, you cast Tiamat. You have two cards left in hand. You discard them. When Tiamat comes into play, you draw five dragons and put them into your hand. And then you draw five more cards from Tiamat being five colors. Then when this dies, it deals five damage to anything. That's pretty solid use case in the five color dragons deck. Especially because four, co- four mana dragons are just at a premium in a deck that where everything is high casting cost. I See, for me, this is too much of a liability. Like... I, t- I cast, if we're in EDH, I cast him on turn four. And then on turn five, I cast Tiamat. I pitch my hand. I but, draw but five you, cards. But it's, it's a may. So you can you can push that ability off until it's to your benefit. Oh, uh, okay. I think I missed the may. Um, that what happens. Happens. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's a lot better then. That's a lot better. Because I'm thinking like, okay, so I'm going to cast Tiamat and draw five. But then I'm going to cast a mono red dragon and lose all those cards I drew. But if it's a may, yep. Okay. I'm on board now. Now I do like this because you're absolutely right. The f- it's hard to find four mono dragons, like lower curve dragons in EDH. And that this is all upside at that point. That's great. Like really just a four mono four, four dragon. That's occasionally going to draw you cards when you need it. Seems good enough. And, and kills something on the way out or can take somebody out of the game. The, the other thing here is it doesn't necessarily need to be in a dragon deck. Like it's just a good five color, good stuff card in edh and then the other place i would be curious about whether it will be tested is in niv five color niv mizzet in modern which is largely off the menu lately in top eights but has been around for most of the year prior to the release of mh2 and this is a little awkward in that deck because it's not a multicolored card but it interacts really well with all the other cards in the deck yeah it's um you know i don't know how jammed for slots they are pretty and Weren't, and weren't they playing mostly mono or multicolored cards because oh, yeah. of because uh, when Niv comes into play, Niv, he draws one of each two color combo. Yeah, it seems like if you have them in the top eight or ten or whatever it is, it seems like he'll either be very good for that deck or not relevant. And I am definitely not the person to know the answer to that. It feels like even if he's good there, it's like at maximum one or two copies, right? Because you can't have a bunch of monocolored cards in that deck probably yeah i presume it has to be two or uh i'm sorry unlikely to be more than two unless it was like really really like somehow elevates the archetype which 
pretty unlikely. They gave us a bunch more curses. Most of these don't, I think, are kind of more of the same of what they've already given us. Can we talk about Curse of Surveillance for a moment? Sure. <laughs> Did you look at this card? Yeah. So, uh, oh, it's not even showing up on uh, on Scryfall yet. So Curse of Surveillance, when you look at the card, it is a hand with eyeballs in it. So it's like your own hand is staring at you. Now, <laughs> first of all, this is clearly a veiled joke about cell phones. But beyond that, you curse somebody with the curse of surveillance and what does it do your opponents draw cards what shouldn't the curse of surveillance mean that like you have to reveal the cards as you draw them type of thing right like you're not being surveilled your opponents are just drawing cards like it's just a total mismatch on functionality and description uh, i'm not sure about that cards cards being drawn is about is equivalent to knowledge being acquired and the eyes that they planted in your hands are watching what you do and then telling the master of the curse who is then passing that along to whichever allies they so choose yeah i just but if 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 you want that rules text on a card i don't think you call it curse of surveillance i think you call it curse of like i don't know curse of knowledge or 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 curse of curse of stolen knowledge or something like that right where like they're (laughs) you just defined surveillance stolen knowledge well, no, because surveillance is is observing, right? It was like observing somebody and learning. Like, I, I, it feels like you should be have been looking at their cards. Like, imagine if Curse of Surveillance was like a two mana curse, and it's every time that player draws a card, they choose a target opponent and they show the card to that player. Now that's cool because every card they draw, somebody knows about. But in an EDH game. It's you get to choose who looks at that card, so there's a political aspect to it, and you could toss some extra rules text in there to draw cards or whatever if you need to to make it better. But I don't know; it just feels like a mismatch to me. So putting kind of jarring, putting the thematic debate aside, this is a solid political card. Like I'm not looking to invest in this card, but any number of target players other than that player each draw cards equal to the number of curses attached to the player. So a, if you're playing with a bunch of curses, you can really ramp this up. Even if you're just using Curse of Surveillance, every time uh, their turn starts, you get to draw a card. And then you can negotiate to allow other people to draw cards in exchange for favors. So that's fine. Um, the Mask of Grizzlebrand jumped out at me. Three, One double black, equip is three, so it's six to get this going. The equipped creature has flying and lifelink. It's a legendary artifact equipment. Whenever a equipped creature dies, you may pay X life where X is its power if you drew draw X cards. I mean, that's a non-trivial amount of cards. I mean, Given that you get to do it over and over again. Yeah, flying and lifelink are two good keywords in EDH. Um, and, you know, your creature's power, you're probably going to end up with, what, like, uh, you know, threes and fours most likely. So they're gonna be nice little boosts in card draw. I think it's fine. I don't think it's. I think it's fine. That's that's the most I'm willing to give to that card. So here here's the challenge. I mean, there's a lot of like cute cards in here that are thematically on point. Do you see a modern staple in here somewhere? Um. So Willow, I noticed Willow Geist, and I'm not. This card got worse when I read it a second time. Willow Geist is the one mana one one. Uh, green green one mana one one with trample so i'm already kind of curious 
whenever one or more cards leave your graveyard, put a 1-1 counter on it. So my first parse of that was whenever a card leaves your graveyard. So I'm like, okay, so if you delve like two cards away, this is suddenly a 3-3. Three, three. I'm like, that's pretty solid. But it's not. It's a two, you have two. to be... Yeah, it has to be individual instances. So delving like uh, a, a Tassiger does not give it five counters; gives it one. But I'd have to I'd have to do a more full full scope of like how you exile cards from graveyards in modern these days. But I mean that could be a one mana one one that turns into like a four four pretty quickly. And dying, you gaining life equal to its power when your opponent kills it is also pretty solid if you're in a pretty tight situation. I mean, it's probably going to get pathed more than anything, but that one I did notice as being potentially potent. Delver is back. I mean, matters for Pioneer. Uh, what format did you ask me about? Did you see a modern, modern, a modern staple lying around in this pile of previews? Staple or playable? Either, really, at this point. Hostile Hostile is very good. Hostile Hostile is good. It screws up all sorts of random effects, and it has a solid body that has a, a potent effect when you attack with it, and the opportunity cost is very low. So I think that has a shot of mattering. Uh, what were some of the other ones that caught my attention? We got the be- we got possibly the best wrath ever printed for EDH. Um, and Vengeful Extermination is the translation I'm seeing. It's the 8 mana Day of Judgment, but it costs 1 less for every creature. So you are typically going to pay 2 mana to wrath the board. Uh, that's going to be extremely popular. Yep, I can see the... For sure. The, the problem with, with the wraths, of course, is we're at the point now where there are so many options. Yeah, that yeah. And, and every time a good one comes out, like, you know, we had Dam or whatever in MH2, everybody's like, oh, that's going to see tons of EDH play. And they all see some EDH play, but they don't, they're not the kind of cards where something is revealed or a new deck comes to the forefront or a theme is, is unveiled for a new set or a new card preview drops and you have to run out and buy a bunch of copies. They're just the sweepers and the sweepers are kind of off to the side slow steady demand kind of forever but the more of them you print the more that demand will be spread amongst them yeah they're probably slower burns than other cards tend to be for exactly the reason you outline like nobody runs out and buys vengeful extermination but when they are putting together a deck and they decide they need one for for it they will go buy one then um, as opposed to other cards, people will go by right away. So I agree with you. I do think Vengeful Extermination seems very good. Like, it's just it's just so efficient that it's hard to turn your nose up at that. Um, but I, I agree. It's, it's, it'll probably move copies, but it's not going to, like, light, light the world on fire. You know, we're talking about Modern again. I, what I caught, what people were talking about the, the new Tireless Tracker in Briarbridge Tracker. I don't know. I could be off, but this doesn't seem that good, right? It seems, you have it, the, se- it seems fine, right? Like, in it, standard, sure. Doesn't it seem worse than Tireless Tracker? It's a 4-3 it's a Vigilance until you crack the clue, to, the clue token. Yeah. 4-3 Vigilance for 3 just isn't that big a deal anymore. No, not at all. And, like, if it was just straight up 4-3 three for 3 Vigilance that created a clue token, 
I would be unimpressed. But you still have to have a treasure token, a token, for it to get that two two zero. So like, it can be other tokens, but you still gotta have something. Yeah, I don't know. I it 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 didn't blow me away at all for what's supposed to be the the successor there. Oh, you know a card? Uh, not ed, not modern, but uh, EDH is uh, Augur of Autumn. Whew, whew. It's a shame this is not mythic. Uh, but I guess being rare will make it easier to grab a pile of these. This is a three mana two three in green. You can look at the top card of your library at any time. Okay. You can play lands from the top of your library. That's a good ability. That right there, that's a good ability. And if you have Coven, which is three creatures with different power, pretty easy in EDH, you can cast creature spells from the top of your library. That's really good because that's just like, oh, I have a creature on top, cast it. I have a creature on top, cast it. Oh, uh, I hit. A, I found a land, put the land in the play. Oh, my creature, I have a creature on top again, cast it. Oh, I have a, an enchantment on top of my deck. Oh, I'm going to use a creature to draw a card. Oh, look, I have a creature on top again. Like that card can go bananas so this seems like it's gonna be very popular in edh and just sort of like universally that said there's a bunch of cards that do these kinds of things in green same kind of issues and and they're all popular (laughs) true but there's only the more of these you add as alternatives the the more diluted they all get i prefer things like fiery emancipation made me a ton of money at a last year's summer set because it just it del- it's so clean. It just doubles damage. And then in this set, I'm looking at unnatural growth. Which I was just about to ask, so I'm like, oh, so are you looking at unnatural growth? Yeah, one triple green. Sorry, one quad green. So don't expect to see it anywhere outside of EDH. But at the beginning of each combat, double the power and toughness of each creature you control until the end of turn. That's every combat. So it's not just a single use overrun to win the game. Once this drops your big beefy stuff is just twice as big forever. <laughs> Sounds fine to me. Now I'll point out that that is not cumulative because it's still end of turn. Yeah. But it means but. like your, your pile of dragons or five fives or tokens off your Avenger of Zendikar that have had a couple canners on them or whatever are now all doubled right. as you go, yeah. go attacking. Yes. I, I agree that it is, uh, it is a fun card. The, the problem there is it's rare. Whereas fire emancipation was mythic. Yep, that is the problem. There's a bunch uh, of potential mythics here that are rares. A card that doesn't matter to us, uh, most likely, but will make someone a fortune is Blade Stitch Scob, because they are going to sell 30 copies of this a day, which is the 2 mana 2 3 zombie that gives other zombies 1 0. Oh. Plus 1 plus 0, oh, yeah. The most basic, uncommon version of that card will always sell over 20 copies a day in TCG player. You will never see the previous day's date on last sold copies. Uh, Gisa is cool, but being mono black is a bummer because it makes her harder to play. Cool artwork though. I like that frame. Uh, Flame Channeler. I don't. Did you look at Flame Channeler? My problem with this is why do flame counters draw cards? Why would you make that a flame counter? Make it something else. Not really meaningful, but felt the need to say it. Uh, Rite of Harmony is interesting. This could be modern playable. Not enough, I think, to matter. You're, if this is modern playable, you're making money someplace else. But this is a Glimpse of Nature that adds white. But it's better than Glimpse of Nature because it's cut when you when a creature enters the battlefield rather than casts it. So Glimpse of Nature was one green sorcery until end of turn when you cast a creature spell draw card. This is two mana instant 
When a creature or enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, this turn draw a card. So you get to add enchantment, and it's not cast, it's coming to play. Very potent. Uh, white makes it a little more obnoxious for EDH, because now you're severely cutting down the number of decks you can put it in. But it's a very potent effect. And it's got flashback just tossed in on top of that, too. So that that could matter. That could matter. All I gotta say is this Teferi in this set better be real good. <laughs> uh, I, I will agree that on average this seems a little lower powered. It seems very. It, it seems like this whole set was designed thematically. Is that they call it top down? Top down. Yeah. It's a very but that's, top but down that's but that's good. Like there, it seems like they're trying to pump the brakes a little bit after you know what we have in a strad into whatever it was like the, the power level there was very high. So we're kind of bringing it back a bit. I'm, I'm fine with that. I think players generally are too. I mean, I like Lisa forgotten archangel. I can't remember if we mentioned her last week, two double white black four five flying lifelink angel. Whenever a, another non-token creature you control dies, return that card to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. If a creature an opponent controls dies, exile instead. That would have been a nice mythic too. That is cool, uh, but and I, I read it and had the same thought, and then I went, "Oh yeah, this is basically Athreos." Yeah, uh, which which made people seems, money. <laughs> um, did it? Oh yeah, <laughs> it seemed so. That was uh, that would have been the original one. Athreos got a passage. Uh, whenever another creature you own dies, return it to your hand unless somebody pays three life. Yeah, I guess the Shroud Veiled was. Yeah, Shroud Veiled was really slow. I don't know. I, I think the card is cool, but it didn't feel like it was different enough from Athreos, and Athreos kind of felt like a bit of a drag from from what I remember. So, I didn't get too hyped about it. Yeah, I mean, as a rare, I'm not going to be getting getting all all hyped up here. There's a bunch of solid things in here, and I'm sure there's something we're missing thus far. I mean, Flesh Taker, there's just a lot of good uncommons, right? Like, this set is just is going to have some pretty solid value in the uncommon slot. There's a bunch of cool utility features. Like, Vampire Socialite is a really good aggressive vampire that's probably going to do work in standard. Flesh Taker, white and a black, super creepy art, 2-2 human assassin. So it's basically a serial killer. Whenever you sacrifice another creature, you gain one life and scry one, and then... You pay one sack a creature and give Flesh Taker plus two plus two until the turn. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lots of things you can do with that. Um, did you have any impressions looking at Mystic Skull? This is the two mana artifact for one, and you can tap and add one mana of any color. For five, you can transform it. When you transform it, it turns into Mystic Monstrosity. Which is a five six that says lands you control have add one mana of any color. Yeah, but like the, the set the rules text aside, did you like notice anything looking at that art? Uh, is it Gristlebrand's head? So it can't be Gristlebrand's head because we have mask of Gristlebrand, right? No, but the mask I don't think is is just a. I think it's just um, an, an homage. To yeah, yeah, it's an homage. It's not supposed to be his head that some witch is wearing. I don't know. That looks a lot more Gristlebrandy than Mystic Skull does. I don't know. I looked at Mystic Skull and I'm like, that's a Kabuto helmet. This is from Kamigawa. Why is there a Kamigawa helmet in Innistrad? That's extremely Kabuto helmet to me. It just it just really stood out as not looking like a demon. Hmm. I don't know. Well, the thing here is you for five mana, 
at some point in the game, you just, you get really inefficient filtering for a while, and then all of a sudden you get the, is it Essica out of Cal Time that does the same thing? Mm, sure. No, it's not Essica. It's, uh... yeah, oh yeah, it is. It's Essica, God of the Tree, yeah. Yeah. But she, no, she does legendary creatures you control make mana of any color. So I don't know. Do you want a bad mana rock that, 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 be... that later fixes your mana? That seems not worth it in most decks. No. I, I, I mean, I wasn't looking at this because I thought the card was useful. I think this will be popular in low power EDH decks. Sure. Right? That's where you'll see this show up. But beyond that, no one's really going to go buy copies of this to put in their deck. Yeah, five color Timmy action. I mean, wake like so. Wake to slaughter also seemed good, but it's like two more mana than it needs. Probably at least one mana more than it should be, and it's rare. That's the one that you choose two creature cards in your graveyard, and your opponent chooses which one enters the battlefield and which one goes to your hand. That's kind of cool. But even if you have an instant win condition somehow set up with that, you're still paying five mana for it. What format are you doing that in? There's a lot of cards in this set that I think make sense to put in your collection. I'm not sure it's where I'm going to be digging super deep for specs. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how the numbers play out. Maybe there's some extra stuff in here that's hidden. I do think Hostile Hostile is going to be potent. I do think that card would be good. Keeping in mind, um, we've only seen nine of a, what I think is 20 Mythics. I think all standard sets have 20 Mythics now. Is it that many? Yeah. So if we've only seen nine of 20. We've still got 11 shots at greatness here. I, I will say that I, I'm I'm totally on board with them trying to depower standard a little bit. I think that's a good idea. Uh, arms races like that aren't fun. It just, when it comes to, you know, our, our, topic, our conversations about the set, it's kind of like uh, all of these cards seem like they cost two more mana that they need to an EDH or do like a little bit less than they needed to, to be really good. There's a lot of role players here that fit into tribal strategies, as opposed to just things that are powerful on the surface, just in raw form, regardless of where you put them. Yeah. Which is also good, right? There's no problem with that. Like even something uh, like curse of shaken faith, you can throw that into an EDH deck and just mess with the table. If you're playing at a high power table that likes to go off because every spell they cast past their first deals two damage to them. That's a nice way to speed up a game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, Wilhelm is cool. Um, well, more that it slows down the game, depending on how aggressive the people you're playing with are, I guess. Uh, I was, that Which curse was that? Curse of what? Curse of Shaken Faith. One in a red. And whenever Enchanted Player casts oh. a spell, other than the first spell they cast each turn or copies the spell. Actually, it doesn't make a lot of... Now that I'm seeing it, I thought it, it applied to everybody. Like, it was a sulfuric vortex, but it's only one player... So it might be actually more of a constructed card than it is an EDH card. Yeah, I, I did pause on this card earlier and thought about it for a moment because I was trying to figure out if there was a way to set up an infinite... someone ca Forcing someone to cast an arbitrary number of spells. Like, can I... I obviously, we used... Um, oh, Chain of Smog... Right was the one combo that people were using, but you were casting that a bunch of times. Like, how do you force the opponent to cast something? The only thing I could think of was like one of those enchantments that where they copy like Hive Mind, but Hive Mind already has when conditions associated it. We don't need another one. 
Well, I mean, you you can put this, apply this, you can curse yourself and then figure out how to uh, invert the damage to people. But, yeah. But the more... Yeah, I, you're, the, you're still at three-card combo there. Yeah, the more I look at it, the less excited I am. Yeah. Stretch, stretching card, hard but... to try, trying to look for pennies in the night, <laughs> as it were, but I'm just finding horror tropes. Yeah, you're better off just doubling back and to some of the older sets and seeing what's going on over there, or just buying secret layers, basically. All right, well, we'll check in on this next week and see if they've uh, wowed us a little further. Where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and my pal the Cricket is in an undisclosed location. Uh, I really wish he would let me find him, but for the time being, that's where the two of us are on Twitter. You guys can find me on Twitter at mtg critic as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com and my constant haunting of the pro trader discord speaking of which i'd like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just 9.99 a month or 109.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business and a super active discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering i noticed that there were some reports this week of people getting out of their uh Seb McKinnon, Chalice of the Voids, above 150, which I think we got them in on in the 70 to 80 range. So those folks have paid for their subscriptions pretty handily this week. Wow. That's a good turnaround on that. Yep. I'm, I'm almost the, out, too. Uh, I've got two copies left or something. That Judge promo, right? Yep. Wow. That's, uh, that's nifty. Uh, once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Which brings us to the end of episode 288. Uh, had fun looking at Instrad spoilers. I'm sure we'll look at some more next week. Uh, and I will see you then, James. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.